Okay, now we dip into some really amazing stuff. We're going to talk about Augustine, who was 354 AD to 430. He was born in Hippo, which is now Anaba, Algeria. And he was a wandering man. He spent a good chunk of his life traveling and wrote a pretty detailed and, frankly, quite sexually explicit autobiography, which went over how his thinking evolved over the years. Uh, they call It's called the Confessions or Confessions. His, uh, his famous prayer, you might have heard it, is, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Not yet. Soon, soon. I will start that diet. No, not now. Soon. Soon. And he, of course, was very well versed in ancient Greek philosophy, uh, in particular Plato and Plotinus. And one of his most powerful achievements was trying a overlap a union between Platonic philosophy and Christian theology now. As I've said, when conjectures or hypotheses are contradicted by empirical evidence, it is the conjectures or hypotheses that must change. Now, for Augustine, it was philosophy that must change when it runs into con- if it contradicts religious revelation, if it contradicts the uh, faith, if it contradicts theology, then it is philosophy that must change. And he did a an amazing job, frankly, and, and some Christians are so unaware of the seamless integration of Platonism with Christian theology that you could make a case that not insignificant parts of Christian theology post-Augustine is based on uh, ancient Greece rather than on the Bible. But he had this uh, amazing ability to synthesize and overlap. And he took on the tough issues, right? The tough issues. And in particular, what we're going to focus on here is the problem of evil. Aha. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the arguments. I'm going to argue forcefully for them, uh, put some of the traditional arguments against them, throw in a few of my own. But the problem of evil is uh, something like this. Um, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. And we're just going to focus on the all-good. God is perfectly virtuous. But God created the universe and everything within it. Evil is a thing within the universe. Therefore, God created evil. Therefore, God cannot be all-good. So that's one argument. Another argument is, why is there so much suffering in the world If God is all good and God loves humanity and God created humanity in his image, then why is there, why are these classified as two kinds of evils? Why are these two kinds of evils in the world? The first kind of evil is straight up human evil, uh, murder, rape, theft, assault, war, predation of every kind. And the second are what are called natural evils, earthquakes and uh, storms that that kill people and uh, droughts that starve people and so on. So there are... human disasters or human sorry human evils and natural evils so this is a big a big problem of course it's important to remember that back in the days of augustine there was significantly more evils particularly humanity was very subject to the natural evils because there was little protection against problems of of natural forces so 
And of course, there was a lot of, I mean, there was uh, plagues and, and there was very little protection, if any, against disease and so on. So they had a lot of suffering. In the, I mean, Half of the babies died before the age of five. It was just a huge amount of suffering. So we're going to talk about the free will argument, right? So the free will argument goes something like this. If you suffer, then it's not God who did this to you, but it's you who did this to yourself. A suicide doesn't get to call anyone a murderer. Well, a suicide doesn't get to call anyone anything, but a suicide or self-slaughter is not a murder. You die by your own hand. So if the ghost, if a suicide came back and pointed at the person who found the body and said, he, he, he murdered me, he murdered me, this would be an evidence of a significant delusion, and you'd have to say to the ghost, uh, well, you're probably not resting easy because you're not really processing that you killed yourself and you weren't killed by someone else. So blaming God for the evils that we inflict upon ourselves is nuts, right? It's like blaming the farmer for being fat. Now, the farmer grows the food, but you have the choice of what you put into your body. And so the fact that the farmer grows an excess of food does not make you fat. You can also see this in various editorials that are going on these days where people say, well, the pandemic caused the school lockdowns. It's like, no, 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 nope, not even close. <laughs> not even close. The pandemic did not cause a school lockdowns. School lockdowns was a specific policy that was decided on by governments and uh, often against some of the will of the people. But yeah, it wasn't the pandemic. So you try to get this uh, when you're ashamed of your own decisions or you feel bad about what you've done or you see the hidden consequences rather than the visible benefits of what you've done, then the urge is to blame either other people or some sort of inevitability. And and to have current choices be the result of dominoes that have just fallen over, like just a, a bunch of dominoes that fall down. Pandemic was one domino. School closures was just the inevitable next domino. And you wouldn't blame the government for the fact that the the, the COVID-19 was airborne, you wouldn't blame the government for that, at least certainly not the municipal government. You wouldn't blame that because that's just a factor of the uh, illness. But what they try and do is say, well, you know, we have to deal with physical forces, we have to deal with gravity, we have to deal with radiation, we have to deal with uh, inertia and momentum, and we also have to deal with the fact that COVID caused the schools to close when, of course, it didn't. So blanking out human choice in the interim is is important. And so to blame God for the evils that you choose, despite the fact that God gave you the example of the Old Testament, gave you the example of Jesus, gave you uh, the Ten Commandments, gave you endless exhortations to follow the moral law, gave uh, you the promise of heaven and the potential curse of hell, Uh, if after all of this instruction and your soul yearning towards good and having great rules and great examples and what would Jesus do, if you still choose to do evil and blame God, well, that's... uh, that doesn't really make any sense at all, right? So so that's sort of the argument from free will. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily answer the question that if you go and uh, kill a kid and murder a child, well, the child didn't have much free will in that situation. And it could be, of course, uh, argued from the theological perspective that the child is in a better place, that they are being released from the veil of tears and the valley of the shadow of death known as mere tangible reality, They've gone to heaven, and also that the sin 
was perhaps the parent's failure to protect the child from the murder, that there was a murder in the vicinity and the parents didn't stand before the child and so the lack of courage. So you could make sort of these arguments that even with regards to the victims of crime, and you can kind of see this when if people say, you know, I was I was in a bad neighborhood, I was wearing, wearing really expensive clothing and, you know, I got robbed and it's like, well, yeah, of course, it was totally wrong that you were robbed. Absolutely. The person who robbed you or the people who robbed you should go to jail. But you had some responsibility in the risk you took on. Now, there's a really delicate situation and you really want to balance things because you don't want to say, well, anyone who leaves their house is just inviting crime. But there is a certain amount of just plain common sense that is necessary in order to avoid or prevent a crime. So you can deal with some both actions of criminals and even the criminals' victims with an appeal to free will, moral responsibility, and if you are a genuine victim, you get to a better place. So the other question, of course, or the other argument is what about natural evils, right? What about natural evils? Now, natural evils could bring about death and suffering for people we'd have a tough time blaming morally, right? So a bunch of kids get killed in a landslide, and where's the moral evil in that? Now, one of Augustine's solutions is the fall of man argument, right? So God created a perfect world, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had free will and uh, did all the right things, but then the serpent came along, uh, Satan came along in the form of a serpent, whispered into Eve's ear that she should eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and she convinced Adam to do that, and they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they were ashamed of their nakedness, and they were cast out and uh, into the world uh, to, to earn their own way rather than have the conveyor belt of God's bounty delivered into their stomachs. And... Adam was cursed with work, and Eve was cursed with the pain of childbirth, and a flaming sword barred their way back into Eden. And so the corruption of the world is part of the fall of man narrative. And so there's nobody who's innocent because of original sin, the idea that we all inherit original sin from Adam and Eve. Uh, Even the natural evils didn't exist before the fall in Eden. And so... We brought the suffering by, by participating in the sin of disobedience committed by Adam and Eve and the fact that we inherit that through original sin. We inherit their evil and uh, therefore bad things that happen to us, whether they're from other people's choices or what would be called natural disasters. Well, that's all the result of our evil anyway. And so the punishment that occurs is punishment for our evils. Now, of course, I get, you know, say, how can you inherit sin and so on? Well, you can inherit national debt. So the people who are kind of secular, who don't seem to mind national debts, uh, seem to have a big problem with inheriting sin. But you can inherit the uh, greed of the boomers on your ledger. Now, of course, science has put paid to the notion that we all came from two original ancestors. So if the Adam and Eve story is disproven by evolutionary and biological science, then it's pretty tough to maintain the original sin argument. Now, I'm going to put forward a slightly different argument, which is, and this is putting on my theological hat, so this is not speaking from my uh, own heart, but let me just say this argument. So the argument 
it, it sort of would take modern science to understand this argument. So the modern argument, I think, could be something like this. So there is a giant uh, mudslide that uh, kills a bunch of kids. And the argument could be something like this as to how is that, uh, how, how would, why would God create such a situation or allow for such a situation to occur? And a theologian might make the following argument, that God gave you reason and a rational universe. So God gave you reason combined with a rational universe. You have an instinct for reason. Babies develop the capacity to process objective reality very early. And so if you are given the thirst and capacity for reason, that is one of your first instincts, and you are given a perfectly rational universe, then what is the sin that would leave you helpless in the face of natural disasters, right? So let me give you an analogy. You wake up on a glacier. It's really cold. You wake up, open your eyes, squint around. It's kind of mid-morning. And you look next to you, and there's a giant tent with instructions. But it's unassembled, right? It's just like a pile of yurt. A yurt is a kind of uh, mystical cave of skins that John Anderson used to sit in before singing. So you wake up and you see the ingredients or the bits for a yurt and you look, oh my, there's clear instructions. It's only going to take you maybe an hour or two to put the yurt together. So it's cold, but it's still day out, right? So in order to survive the night, you have to put the yurt together. You have to, you know, get someplace uh, with shelter and so on, right? So that your body heat at least can warm up the yurt to the point where you won't freeze to death overnight. But you're feeling kind of lazy and, you know, maybe you're sure someone's going, I don't need to put this yurt together. That's going to be annoying and frustrating. And I remember when I tried to put that ottoman together from Ikea. Oh, what a nightmare. Forget it, right? These, these instructions look kind of complicated. So instead, you kind of look around, you stretch a little, maybe you take a nap because, you know, you're still a little tired. And then uh, you uh, you check out the birds, and then you go to the edge of the glacier, and you look down, and, and you know, next thing you know, the sun is just disappearing behind the horizon, and it's getting really freaking cold. And then there's no moon, it's a cloudy night, it's pitch black, now you can't put the yurt together. And you freeze to death. And after you freeze to death, you float up to God, and you say to God, I died. Why, why do you allow so much suffering in the world? I died because of natural... Why would you allow it to get so cold? Why would you allow, allow me to be incompatible with the cold to the point where I freeze to death in this horrible fashion? You're such a mean God. It's terrible. It's awful. What are you doing? I have foundational issues with how you designed the universe. You can't be good and allow me to freeze to death. To which, of course, I imagine God would say something like, Dude... Dude, it's true that you cannot survive that temperature, but you can survive it if you're inside a tent. I gave you all day to put the tent together. I gave you clear instructions on how to put the tent together. You voluntarily chose to not put the tent together. You got lazy, and, and, and I also told you that laziness is a great sin. Sloth, one of the seven deadly sins. Laziness is a great sin. 
I give you all the ingredients for the tent, all the bits you need to put the tent together. I give you clear instructions, and I give you three or four times the amount of time that you need to actually put the tent together. And then you blame me for freezing to death. You say, oh, these natural evils are, are punishing me and it's terrible. It's like, no, 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 I gave you all you needed. Capacities, instructions, time, and a clear and a clear knowledge of what happened or what happens if you don't do the work, right? So if we go, and again, this is a theological argument. So let's go back to the kids who get buried in a mudslide. And their parents wail and gnash their teeth and say, God has inflicted such evils on us, he has taken our children. To which God may conceivably, possibly say, dudes, I gave you great attachment to your children, great love for the children, which you professed loudly and publicly. I gave you a completely rational universe, a huge desire for reason, the capacity to fashion walls with your hands, the capacity to move your village, knowing that there was a monsoon and mudslides. And what did you choose to do? You chose to ignore rationality. You chose to ignore the objective nature of the universe. You chose to do things other than build a wall to protect you or move. I gave you every conceivable ingredient and capacity. I gave you opposable thumbs. One of my one of my most proud achievements, one of my proudest achievements. I gave you these opposable thumbs for thumb wars. I go, you use them for thumb wars rather than gripping hammers so that you could build a wall to protect your children. And so you blame me. I gave you every single ingredient to protect your children. I gave you every, I gave perfectly rational universe, reason, hands, told you laziness is a sin, I implanted in you great love for your children, desire to protect them. And what did you do? Did you take advantage of the materials? tools, desires, and detailed instructions that I gave you on how to protect your children? No. He says, you know, let's fast forward in time a little bit, right? So deaths from temperature changes used to be in the millions a year. It's too cold, it's too hot, right? And too cold was the big one, right? The people froze to death all the time. You can still find them occasionally in glaciers. So he might take these, these parents and fast forward and say, look, these people in this society, have accepted science, have accepted reason, have accepted the nature of objective universe, and thou shalt not steal. They have a free market. They respect property rights. Thou shalt not steal means thou shalt respect property rights. So I give them I give them a rational universe. I give them the thirst and desire and capacity for reason. I tell them not to be lazy, and I tell them to respect property rights. So these people have used their reason in pursuit of science, just as I told them to, They've used their reason in pursuit of science and they have respected property rights. So because they have reason and evidence and science and the free market, oh by gosh, look at the reward they have gotten by following my basic moral instructions. Life expectancy through the roof, child mortality way down. Amount of comfort, enormous. Oh well, until the watermelon devil comes along with this rabid environmentalism plus state power, but that's a temptation, right? What did I say? Reason, evidence, property, hard work. You put those things together as these people did. They finally listened to me. Finally listened to me. They can't force you to do it. If I force you to do it, it's no good. Right? There's no teacher alive when trying to teach mathematics to the children 
doesn't give them any theory, doesn't give them any choice, doesn't give them any test, just simply grabs their hands and writes the answers, because then the children learn nothing. There's no instruction. There's no virtue of knowledge gained. There's no knowledge or, or, of, of mathematics gained. So I can't force you. I mean, my God, you know how frustrating it is up here to give you all these breadcrumbs? All these breadcrumbs. I give you the yurt. <laughs> I give you the instructions. I give you the time. I give you uh, the opposable thumbs. I give you, you know you're going to die if you don't do it. And still, you laze and faff your entire existence away. And then you say, oh, God, you're so evil for creating these natural disasters. Oh, they're just natural disasters. Okay, well, if they're all just natural disasters, then why is it that certain groups have had the ability to almost completely eliminate deaths from natural disasters? Why? By following what I said. Reason, evidence, hard work, love of your children, respect property. The people who developed science and the free market, direct, direct results of my work. I gave you a perfectly rational universe and the capacity for abstract reason, and yet you denied science for 150,000 years. Kind of maddening. It's kind of maddening. And I told you to respect property, and yet you allowed rampant theft in your societies. Like I can only do some, I can only give you so many incentives, so many clear instructions, so many capacities. At some point, it does have to be up to you. At some point, I have to respect you enough to give you the choice. And blaming me for the result of natural evils that I gave you every conceivable tool, instruction, capacity, and materials to prevent? I don't know. You know, it's, it's like if, if you choose to, road a mi- to ride a motorcycle blindfolded and you crash into a wall, do you get to blame the wall maker for being evil and just putting things in your path willy-nilly? Especially when you've been told by everyone in their dog, whatever you do, don't ride that motorcycle blindfolded. That's the most essential thing you could do is not ride that motorcycle blindfolded. Then you put on the blindfold, ride your motorcycle, crash into the wall, die, and then come and say, that the builder of that wall... It was just a natural evil. The builder of that wall killed me, man. He's a murderer. So, yeah, the free will thing, that's kind of, a, kind of on you. So, if we look at, sorry, just to break the sort of silly, silly-ish role play, but I mean, I think it's important arguments in it. So, to reframe natural evils as moral evils is one way to start to solve the problem. Now, the other argument that is, uh, I think, important is to say, you know, if we have the syllogism, God is all good, God created evil, someone who is all good or something that is all good cannot create something that is evil, like a a a perfectly virtuous man, by definition, cannot murder, right, the immoral killing of another, right? A perfectly moral man cannot murder. He cannot create an evil action. He cannot create evil if he's perfectly moral. So, to say that evil is a thing in the world and God creates everything in the world, but God is perfectly moral, God created evil, but the perfectly moral being cannot create evil, therefore, eh, right, static. One of Augustine's arguments 
is to say that evil is not a thing. Which, of course, it's not. It's not a thing like a tree is a thing. He said evil is not a thing. So he says, where is evil then and whence? Which means where did it come from? And how crept it in hither? What is its root? And what its seed? Or hath it no being? Augustine answers, evil has no positive nature, but the loss of good has received the name evil. So the argument is something like, like, okay, evil always injures. And how do we know something is an injury? Well, it's a deprivation of the good. Right? How do you know if your ears are injured? Well, you can't hear high frequencies. You get tinnitus. You get whatever, right? So how do you know if your ears are injured? Well, you've been deprived of the good, which is clear hearing with uh, wide-spectrum processing or wide-wavelength processing. If uh, somebody breaks your leg, the deprivation is your leg was whole, uh, your leg was in good working order, and now it's broken. So there always has to be an injury when there is uh, evil. In other words, there has to be a complainant for there to be a court case in a moral system. So all which is corrupted, says Augustine, is deprived of good. Your good functional leg has been broken. The injury is the breaking. Now, has someone created an evil or rather deprived you of your good working leg? So when you reduce the property of goodness, that's evil. Right? So if you take a long stick and sand it down, right? You take a a, a three-foot stick and you sand it down to two foot. You haven't created something. I mean, obviously sawdust and all that, but you haven't created something. You've taken the stick and you've reduced it. It's shorter than it was now. There's simply less of the stick. And that's, you've, in a sense, you've injured the stick's length and you've made a shorter stick. If you have a wall with an archway in it, the archway is the absence of the wall. The wall is there to prevent crossing or provide privacy or something. It's there to block lighter people or things. But the archway allows you to go through. The archway is not the wall. The archway is the absence of the wall. And so evil is simply the sanding down or diminishment or reduction of the good. So God didn't create evil. God created a universe where good could be diminished through free will. But he did not create evil because evil is not a thing. Evil is an absence. Evil is like a shadow. Right? A shadow is the blocking of light. A shadow is not a thing. Now, you can create something. You can create a statue. But you can't create a shadow without creating something to block light. So if we look at evil as a shadow, and it has been described as a shadow, particularly in Jungian psychology, but you know the shadow is fairly common. So if we say something is evil, that's a way of saying, well, it either lacks goodness completely or whatever that means, or it's a lower order, it's a reduction of goodness. So then the question is, okay, so then we, if we accept that as the potential way of describing the effects of evil, the question back to Augustine is, 
whence and how crept it in hither? From where, hither, sorry, from, from where and how did it come into our life? So if evil is an absence, then Augustine says you can't choose evil because there's no evil thing to choose. You, you can't choose evil because evil doesn't exist. It's choosing an absence is not making a choice. So you can't choose evil. All you can do is turn away from the good. You can't choose evil because evil doesn't exist. Evil is the absence. All you can do is turn away from the good. You can't create a shadow, but you, you can't create a shadow directly, but you can produce a shadow by blocking light. You can't create evil, but you can choose evil by blocking virtue, by turning away from virtue. Now, it's not binary, right? You can choose a lesser good. You can choose a, a, a good later uh, at the expense of virtue now and, and so on, right? So it's a lesser good or no good. So Augustine says, for when the will abandons what is above itself and turns to what is lower, it becomes evil. Not because that is evil to which it turns, but because the turning itself is wicked. So evil is when you choose the lesser good. And that's right back to free will. According to Augustine, and I strained to perceive what I now heard that free will was the cause of our doing ill. Evil was a, quote, perversion of the will turned aside from God, end quote, to lesser things. So God did not create evil because evil is not a thing. Think of a GPS. So a GPS, let's say you want to drive to Boston. So you punch in your GPS and it, te- it tells you how to get to Boston. Boston. tells you how to get to Boston. But you drive in the opposite direction. Has the GPS created wrong directions? No. Has the GPS created getting lost? Has the GPS created a thing called driving away from your destination? No. You've got a destination. It's telling you how to get there. You just choose to go in the opposite direction. Now, the GPS is a thing. Boston is a thing. The instructions are things, because they're actually in the world that, that sound waves and so on, right? Or light telling you how to drive. Those are all things. Your choice to turn away from the goal that you've said you want to get to Boston, drive to the opposite of Boston, that's not a thing. It's not a thing that exists in the world. That's a choice that you've made to turn away from the destination you claim to value. It's an absence or a turning away from the right direction. But you have the perfect free will to do. You can, you can absolutely choose to say, I want to get to Boston. Oh, it's telling me how to get to Boston, drive the opposite direction. You totally have the free will to do that. But that's not saying, well, God created evil. <laughs> no, he gave you free will. You see, the GPS doesn't grab your steering wheel <laughs> with giant Terminator-style pincers or lobster claws and hit the gas and drive you to Boston against your will. Now, of course, if we understand that Boston is, is heaven or union with God or virtue or something, I think we can understand that you can turn away from God. You can turn away from virtue. That's not God creating free will. That's you driving in the wrong direction. <laughs> it's not a thing that God created. And God gave you the car, the GPS, hearing, sound, sight, vision, <laughs> you name it, and the desire to get to the instructions to go to Boston. But you're still free to not go to Boston. You can go the opposite way <laughs> of Boston, right? 
If you say, I really want to protect my hearing, and then you go to Metallica concerts and stick your head in the speakers for an hour, has your resulting hearing loss, is that the fault of the speakers? Is that the fault of Metallica? Is that the, no, is that the fault of God? Well, I think we can uh, understand all of that. So the question to me, at least of from a theological perspective, why does evil exist? Well, evil exists so that good can exist. The possibility of evil exists so that virtue exists. If you could never drive in the wrong direction, there'd be no such thing as a GPS, though a GPS does not guarantee that you will drive in the right direction. It just gives you the instructions on how to do it. You understand? If human beings never drove in the wrong direction, there would be no need for a GPS. There'd be no need for maps. Or, I suppose you could say Windows. Because, <laughs> you know, wrong direction would be crashing into another car. If driving was always perfect, there would be no need for safety features. There would be no need for wheels. Uh, uh, sorry, there are no steering wheels and no need for GPSs and all that, right? So the fact that we can drive in the wrong direction is why we have all of these guides. Human beings have the capacity to turn away from virtue. And the greatest evil is to use the tools of virtue in pursuit of vice. Because then you go from a natural evil, which is not really evil, just an accident or a bad bad occurrence, to active evil. So when you use the language of morality in order to enact a program of evil, right? if you say to someone, I'm here to protect you, and through that you gain trust and then you injure them, if you say trust is a virtue, you should trust me, and therefore you exploit people, uh, you using that, you use that to exploit people. The animals don't say any of that stuff, right? I mean, they have camouflage and tricks and so on, but they don't appeal to moral statements in order to exploit and pillage people, right? So if there's an unjust war declared and it said, if you love your country, if you love your family, then you will go to war. Well, that's love and virtue and honor and loyalty and patriotism and so on. It's all being used in the pursuit of evil. So when you use statements of virtue in order to enact the actions of evil, well, that's and when you use UPB to violate UPB, nothing is certain, right? When you create quote universal moral claims on others, but simply, uh, but specifically and subtly exclude you and your friends, give them the opposite. Thou shalt not steal, but I can rob everyone. But that's evil. Evil is using the language of virtue to exploit and destroy people. It's claiming a virtue in order to achieve its opposite. That's evil, straight up. Now, God gives universal moral language. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And particularly the universalism of Jesus. Straight up universality. But God can give you the GPS, but he can't take the wheel. Because if he takes the wheel, there's no GPS, there's no virtue. If God controls what you're doing, then it's like a teacher grabbing your pen and writing the answer when you don't even know the question. You've learned nothing other than sub, sub, uh, obedience. God gives maximum freedom because to control our will would be tyranny. So God gives us maximum freedom, maximum responsibility with instructions. He doesn't just dump us on the glacier with no yurt and no instructions and no self-preservation instinct. And right, He gives us everything that we need to survive and to flourish. Perfectly rational universe, a thirst and desire for reason, senses that work, universal moral rules, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, 
All of these things are provided to us. All of the ingredients we need for flourishing are given to us. But God could not control us more. He gives us options, right? Here's the GPS. Here's the instructions for the earth. He gives us a goal. He gives us the means. He gives us the capacity. But he can't force us to do it. Because to force would be immoral. And God cannot be immoral. Right? You can ask a woman to go away with you for the weekend. You can't chloroform her and put her in your, the trunk of your car and drive her away for the weekend. You can ask your neighbor to lend you $100. You cannot steal $100 from him. You can ask a woman for sex. You can ask a man for sex. You cannot force it. And so the fact, it's a strange thing when you think about it, the fact that God does not force us is considered to be a bad thing. But that is because God cannot be immoral and therefore God cannot force us. God cannot pick us up like a puppet master and force us to build the wall that protects our children from the mudslide or move our village. God cannot force us to build the yurt because that would be to enslave us. Now, it would be cruel to put someone on a glacier with no yurt and no instructions and no self-preservation instinct and so on. But to put someone there and to give them the capacity to survive until help came, help being death and heaven maybe, come on. You can woo a woman, right? You can put your best foot forward. You can send her roses and poems and all these kinds of wonderful things. You can do all this lovely stuff for a woman. You have to take no for an answer. Otherwise, you're a stalker. Right? You can ask her out maybe twice. She keeps saying no, and please says stop asking me out. You have to respect that. You can't show up at her house. You can't stand on her lawn. You can't kidnap her. All of these things would be evil. So the fact that God doesn't stalk us or initiate the use of force against us in order to get what he wants, which is for us to be good, we view this as this respect for our autonomy, which is essential to everyone. He says, thou shalt not steal. He refuses to steal our will. Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> I mean, isn't will and virtue the most important thing that we have? You can take my hundred bucks, but don't steal my integrity. Don't steal my virtue. Slander, of course, being the attempted theft of virtue. So the fact that God respects our autonomy and allows us to choose, which is the essence of morality. I mean, you can't stab me unless I need an operation and you have my permission to do it. The permission is key. You cannot forcefully control other people. That's tyranny. And God refuses to enact a tyranny upon us. He gives us the greatest capacity to achieve virtue through a desire for virtue, a perfectly rational universe, universal moral rules, respect for property rights, opposition to violence. All the ingredients right there to build paradise on earth. And we keep screwing it up. How is that on God? The only way that we can blame God is if we were to say, well, you have to take away my free will. You have to control me. But then there's no virtue possible. God has designed the universe, I would assume, to produce the maximum virtue possible. So he's given us a thirst for virtue. He's given us instructions for virtue. But he cannot control us because that would be to eliminate virtue. And he wants to increase virtue. 
You know, if you want your rose plants to grow, you don't just yank them out and say, well, they're taller now. It's like because you just killed them. Just yanked them out of the ground. And another argument would be that God actually wants us to outgrow rules. Right? So you give the Ten Commandments, and those are the goals. Right? So if you just look at non-aggression principle, respect for property rights, which are eminently supported in the Bible. Jesus, post-Jesus. We take those, say, okay, that's the goal. How you get there is philosophy. Right? So there are times in the Bible where God appears to get a, a tad bit impatient with the progress of humanity towards the goal of morality. And, uh, you know, there's the occasional flood, uh, pillars, uh, pillars of salt, columns of fire, Sodom and Gomorrah, you name it, right? Gabriel, blow the trumpets. Because we keep screwing it up. But he can't interfere to not screw it up. He, he can't interfere to have us not screw it up. And this is, this is an act of parenting, God the Father. There's kind of the clues there, right? God the Father. He cannot. He cannot interfere with us. If you're trying to teach your child a racket sport and you just keep grabbing their arm and hand and swinging the racket for them and never let the do, the do them do it themselves, they learn nothing. They resent you. And they will actually hate racket sports for the rest of their life because it's been traumatic and bullying and controlling to try to learn it. If God forces us to do stuff, we end up hating virtue. God has given us a thirst for virtue, clear instructions, the capacity to achieve it, the goal of heaven, the punishment of hell. After that, what can you do? Because he wants us to love virtue. If he forces us and controls us, we will hate virtue in the same way that anyone you force and control something they will resent that instruction. So the problem of evil in the Christian universe, and I say this due to a fairly deep lack of familiarity to much of the other theologies, so as raised as a Christian, that is, and, and as a, that's my sort of understanding, as a parent, this is really key. You give your children good instructions, but you cannot physically control them. Oh, you shouldn't. You cannot morally, physically control your children. And moral people tend to be happy. Evil people tend to be unhappy. Moral people can achieve the greatest fruit of love and happiness. Evil people cannot. They get empty lust and power-seeking instead. God has even constructed us to pursue virtue and shun evil. He's given us even the emotional apparatus and a conscience, the soul, the UPB of the mind, to punish us with the sin of hypocrisy when we create moral rules for everyone but exclude us and our friends. More than that, he cannot do without turning us away from virtue, without making us hate virtue. He's given us the capacity to love virtue, but he forces us to love virtue. It's like kidnapping a woman so she'll love you. She'll just hate you. He cannot control us to get us to achieve virtue because that will achieve the true hatred of virtue that comes from the feeling of compulsion. You can't John Fowles collector-style kidnap a woman into loving you. She will hate you. You control her, she will hate you. And God doesn't want us to hate him, so he gives us the freedom to choose evils because there is no capacity for virtue without the capacity for evil. And he's really stacked the deck in favor of virtue. He didn't just turn us loose with nothing, no instructions, no guides, no instincts, 
an irrational universe. No, no, no. He told us, respect property, do not initiate violence, morality is universal. And I've put something in your head that will punish you when you violate that, and something in your head, the same thing, which will reward you if you pursue it. I, I mean, after that, come on. I, I, no, that's, I, even that I was somewhat uncomfortable with, he might say, because that's real close to programming you. So I gave you as great a GPS as you could possibly have. It's navigating you to my bosom, to heaven itself. You turn away from that, where the instructions are continually whispering in your ear, and you say you want to get to heaven. You turn away from that and blame me? Well, the blaming and the turning away are one and the same. If you don't blame me and take full authority and responsibility for your own morality, well, then you can get to heaven. But blaming me and turning away are the same thing. In fact, the blame is the first domino that results in the turning turning away. And I gave you autonomy. Nobody can control you. Nobody can control your mind. They can put guns in your face. They can't control your mind. I gave you that full autonomy. And you blame me? To hell you go.